0: Again, to Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, a passage that I trust we're becoming quite familiar with. I think you will probably recognize that I have a lot of affection for this passage. I find it to be a very significant passage in the book of Colossians and even in terms of the entire New Testament, because within the span of these uh, five or six verses, there is a tremendous amount of biblical truth. And so reading Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, the apostle writes, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Once more, let's pray. Father, even as we've already committed This service to you and our presence here before you and even the preaching of the word, we would just again make this our petition. Uh, Give us your Holy Spirit to grant us light and the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might live lives that are worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ And that the very aim of our lives would be to please the Lord Jesus in every respect. And all that Paul prays for in this particular prayer, we likewise would seek with respect to not just the hearing of your word, but for our very lives in the doing of your word, living as you would want us to live as those who name the name of Christ. This is what we would pray for in Jesus name. Amen. Now, I want to begin by asking you a question. What is the current pandemic that affects greater numbers than COVID, though it does not necessarily kill you or put you on a ventilator? It has affected more people than COVID, apparently, and it has the nasty ability to spread digitally through our environment. Well, according to the mental health experts, it's FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. To quote these experts, the fear of missing out is the feeling or perception that others are having more fun, living better lives, or experiencing better things than you are. It involves a deep sense of envy and affects self-esteem. It it is often exacerbated by social media sites like Instagram and Facebook. FOMO is not just the sense that there might be better things that you could be doing at this moment, but it is the feeling that you are missing out on something fundamentally important that others are experiencing right now. It can apply to anything, from a party on a Friday night to a promotion at work. But it always involves a sense of helplessness that you are missing out on something big. Now, FOMO, uh, apparently, and especially in teenage girls, but with females generally, has the impact of deepening depression. And in males, and especially teenage boys, FOMO deepens social anxieties. But the concern that the experts all share is that FOMO is real. It is pandemic among all those who own a smartphone, which according to last year's Pew Research Center study, is 85% of all Americans. And FOMO, alarmingly, is self-perpetuating. Those who have FOMO most often intensify the activities that that caused FOMO in the first place. Now, what is not being said by the experts on all of this is that the root of FOMO is linked directly to what I spoke about last Sunday, this matter of how our culture has elevated and privileged the individual psychological self, the idea of expressive individualism to the highest pedestal of authority. Our culture has cast this vision that what is most important in life is the trinity of self, me, myself, and I. How I feel about life. The basic non-refutable idea within our culture is this, that I have a liberty to define what life is all about according to my own feelings about reality, my own Feelings about existence and about the meaning of the universe. My own feelings about the mysteries of life. I sit upon this pedestal of self-expressive authority. But in truth, people are actually not very good with using this liberty. They don't sit on this pedestal with all that much comfort. Most people are not very good at defining the reality of their own experience or the reality of their own existence. In fact, most people are not able to define the reality of, of their own existence so that they would be happy and content and satisfied with life. No, because while people are trying to figure out how to do this big thing, figure out their own life, they feel this compulsion to measure their lives and how well they are doing against the lives of others. Does their story measure up to the life stories of the many, many others about whose lives they can read on Instagram and Facebook? What if their story's missing something important? What if they are missing out? FOMO is one of the direct consequences of this expressive individualism's mandate centered in the psychological self that we have this inner and ultimate authority to create our own lives, to be worthy of all that we are pleasing to all of our desires and aspirations authentic to who we really are all accomplished by looking inward to our authoritative inner self. But here's the ugly truth. When we look inward to our own hearts for guidance. All we find are feelings, things like worry, anxiety, fear, depression, envy, and anger. The, the truth that we find when we look within is not some great voice of wisdom. We don't connect to some inner avatar whose voice conquers these feelings and offers clear guidance in life. And the fear of missing out, the mental health experts are pretty solid on this fact. The fear of missing out effectively cripples a person's mission to believe in himself, to create this authentic self. On the other hand, what do we have as Christians? We have a mission in life that is fundamentally invincible to FOMO. Paul's prayer makes reference to this mission in verse 10, when he prays about bearing fruit in every good work. Paul's petition is that every Christian would bear fruit in every good work, and that's a vital principle undergirding and underlying the Christian life. It is the fundamental and original statement of our mission and mission objective as believers. Stated most simply, the principle underlying Paul's prayer is this. We have a mission for the Christian life, and that mission is to bear fruit in every good work. Or, as it's often stated, we have been saved unto service. And this service is most foundationally a mission of being fruitful in the doing of good works. Now in the New Testament, there was such a strong relationship between a saving faith and a serving life. Often this is referred to as the faith and works connection, but it's also been referred to as the faith and works controversy. Because at the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had, as it were, privileged the book of James as the lens for interpreting all of the rest of the New Testament and the Bible in order to say that a person is saved by both faith and works. And in response, Luther, and all true Protestants after him, declared what the New Testament actually says, that as we are saved by faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, but that faith is never alone. Rather, a true faith always issues in a changed life a life that seeks to do good works. Saving faith is the fountain of good works, and good works are the evidence of a true faith. So when James raises the question, can you be saved by a faith that stands alone, which does not produce good works? Well, the answer is no, that's not saving faith. Uh, That's a faith no different than the faith and belief that demons have. No true faith that saves. The true faith that justifies and makes us righteous in the sight of God, is a faith that is the source and wellspring of good works. Or, in another way of stating this, it is saving faith in Christ that produces in us the desire and willingness to actually love our neighbors as ourselves. Thus, every Christian has the same basic mission and purpose in life which is to be active in doing good works, which reflect the practical application of the second greatest commandment and which has a genuine impact on this fallen world, all to the glory of God. Now, this is what we're looking at this morning. We have a mission for the Christian life. And in this regard, we need to look closely at three main New Testament truths about good works and the believer's mission. First, we're going to see that it's definitional that all true believers have both the potentiality and actuality of good works in their lives. Secondly, it's the essence of how good works are defined in the New Testament that they are the practical application of the second greatest commandment. And thirdly, it's the very nature of Christ's mission for believers that their good works are the means by which they will have a genuine impact in this world to the glory of God. We have a mission for the Christian life. So the first truth is this. It's definitional of all true believers that they have the potentiality and actuality of good works in their lives. Now, the New Testament, with complete consistency, bears this testimony to the potential nature and the actual nature of good works in the lives of true believers. This strong relationship between salvation and good works is the teaching of Jesus, it's the teaching of Paul, it's the teaching of James. All three teach that a true faith is the wellspring, the fountain of good works. So first, we'll listen to Jesus, then to Paul, and then to James. So with respect to Jesus, I want us to think, first of all, about the parable of the sower. Think about how it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. It's in chapter 13, and verses 1 through 8. But I want us to look at really the the explanation that Jesus gives of this parable in verses 18 to 23, specifically to his disciples. Now, in this kingdom parable, uh, Jesus illustrates what's going on with four kinds of soil. And the point is that it's only the fourth soil where the word of God, the word of the kingdom, actually takes proper root and produces fruit. So with his disciples, verses 18 to 23, Jesus gives this interpretation. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. That would be the first soil. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. That's the second soil. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. That's the third soil. But as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. So Jesus is teaching that those who truly receive the kingdom which means to truly embrace Christ as their king, they will prove this to be true because they will bear fruit in their lives. True faith produces true fruit. Or consider what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. This is the, uh, the metaphor of the vine and the branches. And there Jesus says to his disciples, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean. By the way, the word there is pruned, just as it was earlier. Uh, you are pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Again, Jesus is teaching that true faith in Jesus is the fountain of the bearing of true fruit, which then proves the presence of a true faith, which then brings glory to the Father. Now, consider the Apostle Paul and what he has to say about faith and good works. The first passage, which is almost, uh, as it were, the, the, the gold standard in the New Testament relating these two things, Ephesians 2, 8-10, through 10. it is such a great statement about saving faith as well as a great statement about the identity and purpose of the Christian life. So Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul says, saved by grace through faith, not by our works, yet we are saved for the sake of good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us to do, for us to walk in them. What a tight connection between salvation by grace through faith and God's design that salvation would be unto good works. We see it again in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul is very clear that the grace of God in and through the saving work of Christ produces in the life of believers, a zeal for good works. So, If we are truly redeemed from all lawlessness, if we have been truly purified uh, for the sake of Christ, then we will be his possession as people who are zealous for good works. But if we're not zealous for good works, then it follows that we are not his possession. We have not been purified for Christ. Thus, we have not been redeemed. So for Paul, it's definitional of being a true Christian that we will have the potential nature for good works that will also become actual. We will become actual in good works. And then we come to James, uh, the famous discussion in James chapter 2. Now, James writes in his own way. He expresses this in his own way. But he's saying essentially the same thing as Paul, the same thing as Jesus. In verse 14, he raises this question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now think about this. James is the earliest New Testament book. And so among the original disciples who are hearing and reading what James has written, uh, because they personally heard what Jesus taught, they would have responded like this. No, that kind of faith can't save you. And they would have pointed to the parable of the sower. They could have pointed also to Jesus' teaching about the vine and the branches. Those who are truly of the kingdom, those who are truly disciples of the Lord Jesus, they are going to bear fruit. They are going to be committed to do good works. So James presents his argument in terms of an example about faith and works. So verses 15 and 16, James writes, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Which the point is, these would be very, very empty words, empty blessings, not of any value at all. Then James applies this to faith. Verse 17, he says, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then in verse 26, he re-emphasizes this same thought. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now what we see here is that saving faith will always produce good works. Jesus teaches this. Paul teaches this. James teaches this. They do not teach that good works have any part in saving us. Good works do not have any part in earning our way into heaven. No. No. What they teach is that a true salvation, a true faith saves us only but completely through the work of Christ. But that true faith will always have intrinsic to its nature both the potentiality and the actuality of being the fountain and producer of every good work. Now the reason why I mention this potential thing is... Uh, has to do with people, I think, who sometimes just don't quite get it. They'll say something like this: "Well, then you've just excluded every baby that dies, or every young child that's never lived long enough to show any good works. You've just excluded them from salvation." Or what about people who are very, very old when they get converted uh, and die on their deathbed, and and you you just you've said that they have to have you've said it's a necessary thing for them to have good works in order to go to heaven. No, I didn't say it that way. I didn't say it that way at all. I said that a true faith has the potential to produce good works. And a true faith will have the actuality to produce good works and in everyone who begins to live a life by faith. That's what I've said, and that ought to be very clear. I think people who can't get this and can't understand this are those who really raise issues in a contentious manner with respect to the church. The reformational position has always been very, very clear. Can someone be saved without any good works to their credit? Well, we can point to the thief on the cross. And yet, even there, we would say, his good confession in Jesus is the best good work that anyone could ever perform under the circumstances in which he lived and died. So, coming back to this, this first truth is this. True faith is, And good works have this tight connection, the connection of salvation and service. Faith is the fountain from which good works will spring. Jesus, Paul, James all teach this. Now, secondly, it's the essence of how good works uh, are defined in the New Testament that they are the practical application of the second greatest commandment. Now, we can look to Jesus who made this very clear. In Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 through 37, uh, Jesus is approached by a lawyer, one of those who are experts in the law, really in order to test Christ. And so he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by saying to him, well, what is written in the law? And the man answers by giving to Jesus a statement of the first and second greatest commandments. And so he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds to this by saying, do this and you will live. But the man isn't satisfied. He wants to somehow vindicate his own life in some manner or possibly he wants to trip up Jesus and so he says to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Now, in response, Jesus doesn't tell him, he shows him in a story he then relates. And he does this in the story that we know as the story of the Good Samaritan. So we know how the story goes. This a nameless man uh going from from uh Jerusalem down to Jericho gets attacked, he gets beaten, he gets robbed. He gets left for dead. And a priest coming by sees the man in need and simply passes by. Likewise, a Levite sees the man in need and passes by. Now, these are the two most uh, notable religious offices in Israel, priest and Levite. But then there's a third man who comes by. He's a Samaritan, uh, one of those despised by Jews. So a Samaritan sees the man in need And rescues him and saves his life. So with this story, Jesus actually puts the lawyer on the spot. He asks him, which of the three proved to be a neighbor to this man who was the victim of these robbers? And the lawyer is, of course, compelled to say, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, what Christ is saying is this, the moral and practical implications of the second greatest commandment, loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, is that we would consider every person a potential neighbor. That is to say, anyone we might see in need, even our enemies. The second greatest commandment binds us to the people who are around us in a practical way, such that we are to do them the good they have need of within an understanding of the capabilities that we have of doing so. Or to put it this way, doing good works to others to their good benefit is the moral and practical outworking of loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's what the Apostle John has taught in First John chapter 3, verse 18. Little children. Let us not love in word or deed. Excuse me. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now we also see this in what Christ says with respect to what we call the golden rule, Matthew seven twelve. So Christ says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying that This is to be the practice of our lives as believers. As we wish people would be good to us and to do good to us, so we are to be good to others and to do good to them. The second greatest commandment calls us, in terms of its application, to do good works. True love is demonstrated in our good deeds. We are to practice the golden rule so that in every place where God's providence shows us a need that we can actually meet, we are to do the best we can to meet it. Now, this is what it means to live every day in accordance with Ephesians 2.10. The fact that God has prepared the good works that we are to walk in. He has prepared them in advance for us to walk in them. And so every day, in a practical way, In order to live out this principle of bearing fruit in every good work, we ought to pray, God, what good can I do today for the sake of others? Now, that takes us then to our final idea. Uh, Think about this for a moment. The idea of having a mission and a purpose. the, The idea of having a mission is basically useless unless there's something which that mission is supposed to accomplish. And according to the New Testament, according to Christ, there is. Jesus himself teaches us that it's the very nature of the mission of believers that their good works are the means by which they are to have a genuine impact in this world to the glory of God. Doing good to others, motivated by the second greatest commandment, this is the fundamental an original way that Jesus taught his disciples to have a lasting impact on the world. This is how the people of God are to have an impact that will bring glory to God. Jesus speaks of this uh, firstly in the first major section of the Sermon on the Mount. After Jesus gives the Beatitudes, he goes on to teach this to his disciples, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. He says to them, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says that his followers, Christians, believers, are both salt and light with respect to the world. Now, these terms are metaphors. They're metaphors for how believers are to have an impact upon the world around them. Jesus tells his followers to keep their salt salty and to keep their light shining for all to see. And this point is this. Do your good works as salt to the world, as light to the world, and people will see, even experience them, and give glory to God. Now, this is the mission objective. This is the foundational and original way that we as Christians are to have an impact in this world. And we can see this restated by the Apostle Paul. In Galatians 6, 7-10, Paul writes these words. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Now just a moment before I go on. Uh, If anything indicts uh, expressive individualism, if anything indicts self-centeredness, if anything indicts the way the world understands uh, internal expressive authority given to every person to determine life for himself or herself, this verse does. Because those who sow for the sake of themselves, the apostle is saying here, are going to reap corruption. But going on. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of the faith. Now, it's significant That the words of Paul fall within his section on how to walk the Christian life. How to live by the Spirit. How to keep in step with the Spirit. And his conclusions tell believers to not grow weary in doing good. Then he speaks to the occasions for doing good. As we have opportunity. And then he speaks to the recipients of our doing good. Do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Now, it's a matter of historical record uh, that from the late 1st century into the 2nd century into the 3rd century, that this simple mission objective lived out by the early church, the church being salt and light, the doing of good works had a tremendous impact on the world of the Roman Empire. You see, the doing of good works toward everyone, not just your own people, was essentially regarded as a moral defect within the pagan intellectual world. And here's why. In almost all cases of doing good to those who are not your own people, such doing good would be motivated by mercy and compassion. But Pagan philosophy was so strongly a quid pro quo view of life and social relationships, that is a a getting of something because of a commensurate giving of something, that acts of mercy and compassion were seen as acts of giving someone something they had not earned and something which they could not repay. So mercy and compassion were actually considered a kind of character defect standing against the pagan notions of proper justice. Now, the historian Rodney Stark, in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, covers all of this in a wonderfully illuminating manner. He describes how this basic idea of the calling of Christians to do good to others, even beyond the household of faith, was so revolutionary and effective in Christianity having this profound impact upon the people of the Roman Empire. Writing about the moral norm of the Roman Empire, standing against mercy and compassion, Stark says this. This was the moral climate in which Christianity taught that mercy is one of the primary virtues, that a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. Moreover, the corollary that because God loves humanity, Christians may not please God unless they love one another, was even more incompatible with pagan convictions. But the truly revolutionary principle was that Christian love and charity must extend beyond the boundaries of family and even those of faith to all in need. Now, what did this look like? What did the early church do in regards to good works? Well, With regards to the widespread practice of abandoning unwanted babies or casting unwanted babies into the river, the early Christians set up rescue operations to save those little babies' lives and then to raise them up within the Christian church. And then with respect to women who contemplated the risky procedure of a potion-induced abortion, They were so often persuaded otherwise, and their unwanted babies were then taken in by Christians to raise them. With regard to the sick and the infirmed, who were too often abandoned, the early Christians stepped in and took over their care and welfare. With regard to mistreated slaves, as often as they could, Christians bought their freedom. With regard to the persecuted, who would be cast into prison, they visited them and took care of their needs. With regard to widows, they were cared for by the church. Stark makes reference to this. He says in and, and 2.15, the Bishop of Rome wrote a letter to the Bishop of Antioch in which he mentioned that the Roman congregation was supporting 1,500 widows and distressed persons. This was not unusual. In about the year 98, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, advised Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, to be sure to provide special support for widows. As the distinguished Paul Johnson puts it, the Christians ran a miniature welfare state in an empire which, for the most part, lacked social services. And then Stark goes on to cite the church father, Tertullian, uh, who lived at the end of the 2nd century and on into the early part of the 3rd century, who describes what the church did with its treasury chest of voluntary donations, that it is used, quoting now Tertullian, to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means, and parents, meaning orphans, of old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck, And if there happens to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in prisons for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become nurslings of their confession. Now, perhaps most significantly, when epidemics and plagues struck different places within the empire, uh, even sweeping throughout the entire empire, as twice happened in the first few centuries of the Christian era, It was the Christians who responded to these crises by seeking to do all the good they possibly could. Stark says this, no one knew how to treat the stricken. It was probably smallpox, nor did most people try for those who could not flee. The typical response was to try to avoid any contact with the afflicted since it was understood that the disease was contagious. Hence, When their first symptoms appeared, victims often were thrown into the streets where the dead lay in piles. Yet, Starr goes on to say, the Christians met the obligation to care for the sick rather than desert them, and thereby saved enormous numbers of lives. And then he quotes from the letter the Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria. Alexandria wrote to his congregation, after the second great plague had swept through the empire, quote, extolling those who had nursed the sick and especially those who had given their lives in doing so. The bishop wrote this to his congregation. Many in in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their place. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner a number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that in death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith seems in every way the equal to martyrdom. Then Stark makes this historical judgment. It is entirely plausible that Christian nursing would have reduced mortality by as much as two-thirds based on. As he notes, on the medical fact that basic elementary nursing, simply providing food and water for those too weak to do this for themselves reduces mortality because it enables the sick to recover rather than to die for lack of nourishment. And he further points out Christians did for the did this for the pagans too, for the pagan neighbors and the relatives. And they took notice that the good works Christians did provided immense credibility to God being at work among them. Now, we need to wrap up what we've covered this morning. Paul's third petition lays out the third basic principle of the Christian life. The first principle that we looked at a couple of weeks ago was this. We have a manual for the Christian life. It is the Bible which we are to live out as the authoritative source of our guidance as growth as Christians. We don't have to look inward. (laughs) Secondly, we have a mandate for the Christian life, a calling to live a Christ-centered life in a manner that's worthy of Christ, where our aim is to please our Lord. It's not about us. Then thirdly, we have a mission for the Christian life. And what is our mission what is our calling? What is our functional objective in this Christian life? It is to do the good that we're capable of doing. in all of the opportunities of life that God gives us as the expression of neighbor love that crosses all human barriers that have been erected because of sin. And it is God's original design that our good works would be the means by which we we would have a genuine impact in this world to the glory of God. In any case, it gives us an answer in response to the world's FOMO, fear of missing out. We can replace it with another FOMO. We can think of it this way. The bearing of fruit in every good work, this is our FOMO, foundational, original, mission objective to bear fruit in every good work may it be so to the glory of God amen let's pray thank you father for this time that we have looked at this relationship between our salvation and service between the faith that you have given to us as the fountain from which good works would come out of our lives in such a manner that even the pagans would see it and we would give glory to you. We pray, Lord, that you might energize us in our faith, that we would trust you, that you have prepared for us good works beforehand, that we would walk in them. But above all, we would know so deeply that the life we live in this world is for the sake of Jesus it's it's not about us and it's it's about loving Christ and it's about loving others even as we would love ourselves and as you would give us opportunity to then do good to all people but especially those who are the household of faith and this we would pray in Jesus name amen